Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, let's have a Bible study tonight, shall we? Turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 9. If you would, and let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we calm our hearts in your presence. It's good that we are here. It's good that we have gathered together. There's many options we could have grabbed for tonight, but Lord, we've come here. We believe you've drawn us by your Spirit. There's a sense of joy and purpose that is in this place. We've already experienced it with the worship and the special music. And now, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take these ancient words of a prophet long gone and make them relevant to us because your word is alive. It is powerful. It is sharp. It divides between the soul and the spirit. And so, Father, we open our own hearts up to you, the master surgeon, that you'd work on us as a group, as your people as we meet, but then also individually. Help us, Lord, as we consider these judgments upon the nation of Israel to consider our own lives, first of all, to make certain that we have a relationship with you. And then, Lord, thankful for the way you purge us even now. You deal with us even now. You discipline us even now. Thank you, Lord. It's because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's an old saying that death and taxes are inevitable. And somebody once said, sure, death and taxes are inevitable, but at least death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. (laughs) But there is something worse than death. And that is standing before God after death and not being prepared for that meeting. That would be worse. We have so many opportunities in life prior to that finality of death. But it does say in the Bible, in Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto every man once to die and then after this, the judgment. Think about it this way. Every day around the globe, about 176,000 760 people die and stand before God in judgment. That's an ominous thought. That many people leave the earth to stand before a holy God. But before the terminal judgment, there is, let's call it a temporary judgment. And Israel is about to face that. We saw last week a courtroom scene where, like a qualified lawyer... Hosea brings five counts, five reasons God should judge the nation of Israel. In chapters 9 and 10, the gavel goes down. 
And God reads the sentence. And the sentence is this. You shall go into captivity just like you went away into Egypt. Before I brought you into the promised land, you will again go into a period of captivity. Now this was all disciplinary. You see, God knew that in captivity they would get so sick of the very nations and values they thought they wanted, they thought they loved, they loved the idolatry, they were drawn toward certain practices. So God gave them into the very originators of those practices. So they just said, okay, uncle, I've had enough. And it's as if God said, hey, great to hear from you again. It's been a long time. And as they began to pour out their heart in a disciplined manner, in a repentant manner, in a truly God-honoring manner, God then would seek to bring them back into the land that He promised their forefathers. So tonight, the gavel goes down, the sentence is read, the people go into captivity. That's what God will tell them in this poetic section of the book of Hosea. If something interesting is happening behind the scenes, the people themselves don't really see any reason why God would judge. After all, it doesn't seem that anything's wrong. On the outward, the nation is prospering. The fields are productive. The national security is better than ever before, they thought. So, times are good. Why ask God for a change? But notice how the prophet begins this chapter. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples. For you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them. And the new wine shall fail in her. The people of Israel, those in the north, remember the ten northern tribes, also known as, in this book, Ephraim, named after the largest and most prominent tribe. Those people had recently made an alliance with an Assyrian king named Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser V. They were paying him money, they were paying him off, giving him tribute money every year in hopes that he would protect them. Protect them from Egypt. Protect them from the threats of nations, not knowing that the very nation of Assyria itself would take them captive. So God says, what do you have to rejoice in? You think all is good because you have paid off the Assyrians and, and you think you've got great security. It's funny the things that we will trust in as Americans. I know our money says in God we trust, but when was the last time we did? We say, hey, we, we've got a new department, Homeland Security. Whew, they'll tell us. If anything's going wrong, our television will have those colors. Yellow, orange, red, green. We hope it's always green, but they'll tell us if there's a threat. And so we might think, all we need to do is trust in the Department of Homeland Security. You've got a great government. And you know what? Given all the factors on earth, we have a great government. But are you trusting in them? 
out in Orange County, I was doing some FBI chaplaincy work, and I was talking to a couple of the folks down in the FBI headquarters, and I noticed that there was a whole squadron called the Al-Qaeda squadron. And I said, now, now what do these people do specifically here in California? He said, all they do is monitor Al-Qaeda activity right here in our backyard. And I said, they're here? In our backyard? Guy put his arm on my shoulder. If you only knew how much they were in your backyard. So I said, well, I thank God they're here. I'll be praying for you guys. They were trusting in their Department of Homeland Security, which was Shalmaneser the Assyrian. You'll, you'll notice the language here. It is poetic. It describes, you have made love for hire on every threshing floor. Now the threshing floor was the place where they would take the produce of the land and separate the chaff from the wheat and gather in the wheat and make their bread and that would become their daily staple food. In the very place that God provided food for them, they were worshiping idols. In the very place God poured out His blessing on them, they were not giving Him the thanks, but attributing the blessing to the other gods. Verse 3, They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Now this is poetic. This is a metaphor. History shows us they didn't go to Egypt. No, no, they had gone to Egypt so many years before. 400 years, God told Abraham, your people will be slaves in a land not their own. So for 400 years, they were in Egypt. After 430 years, they left Egypt and they went into their land, the promised land. In saying you're going to go to Egypt is in essence saying you're going to go back into captivity. This time it will be Assyria. But it's a metaphor here for bondage. You're not going to have the freedom that you once had. Just like you left Egypt and came into this land, you're going into another place of captivity. Now, I'd like you to just be aware of this because we're going to, we're going to pick up on this in the next two chapters. There's a lot of use of geography. That is, God will, in this chapter and in the next chapter, point back to specific places that were once significant in their own history. And usually they're places, they're geographical locations where some great iniquity, some sin in their past history took place. And God is doing this to jog their memory. As if to say, you guys have a history of iniquity. You have a history of disobedience. Remember that place? Oh yeah. Remember that place? Oh yeah. He just keeps bringing all these places back up to show them that the case for their judgment is well founded historically. So he mentions Egypt, and the bondage they're going to go into will be an Egyptian-like bondage, but in Assyria. And shall eat the unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to Him. It's sort of fascinating that God who told them to bring Him sacrifices... In great detail, you remember back in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, God spelled out all of the different offerings they were to bring. And here God says, you're going to bring the sacrifices, but I'm not going to be pleased. 
which causes us to wonder. Why is it that the very God who commanded them to bring sacrifices and offerings wasn't pleased with them? Two reasons. Reason number one, their worship was mixed worship. They didn't worship God only. They didn't worship God exclusively. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. They worship God and other gods and goddesses. So it was a combined worship. It wasn't an exclusive worship. Reason number two, when they worshiped God, their hearts really weren't into it. It was just duty. It was just something that they went through. They went through the motions. You may remember Isaiah chapter 1, where Isaiah says something similar. Now remember, Hosea and Isaiah are ministering at the exact same time. Isaiah is down south. Hosea is up north. And Isaiah will say to the people of Judah, who will also be judged, but years later, 150 years later, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices, saith the Lord? When you bring your offerings before me, there's blood on your hands. I won't receive it. I won't listen. So it was a mixed worship, and it was a worship that didn't include all of their hearts. And so nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. Something else. You discover that not only were these sacrifices not pleasing to God, when they went through all these religious motions, they themselves were not pleased. They weren't being satisfied. Now, a true worship of the true God is always meant to satisfy you. Worship never pleases the person offering it when he or she does it in their own manner and they make God after their own image rather than as prescribed by God himself. You see, if you're going out living your life the way you want to live it apart from God's parameters and God's control, you'll never be satisfied. God made you that way. The more you do as you please, the less you will be pleased with what you do. It's just a, a rule of life. It's a spiritual principle. I was reading about the former president of the Philippines some years ago, Ferdinand Marcos. He had just won his second term in office. It was an early April morning. He was just beginning his second term, and he wrote these words in his journal. I am the president. I am the most powerful man in all of the Philippines. Everything I've ever dreamed for is mine. And yet, deep inside, I have a discontent. How many people have you met? They do, they do whatever their heart pleases. They're never satisfied. So God says, I'm not pleased. And it turns out they won't be pleased either. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. They're not going to be satisfied. All who eat it shall be defiled, for their own bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Here's a day given to you to enjoy. You're not going to have any enjoyment, God tells them why. For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis, that's not Tennessee, but Memphis in Egypt 
which is on the Nile River just south of modern-day Cairo. And Memphis was a place in ancient times that had a burial center. It was a huge graveyard, a necropolis. And this would hearken back these words, this incident, in their minds to the time when they were coming out of Egypt on the way to the Promised Land. Remember the children of Israel complained and they said to Moses, Were there no graves in Egypt? Couldn't we have just stayed there? You could have buried us right there in Egypt. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. Now this is what they were saying. Oh, Israel, they know everything. They're so smart. Why, they know. The prophet, like Hosea, he's an idiot. Now by the way, this is the general view of the unsaved person towards you. The unregenerate man or woman thinks the more spiritual you are, the nuttier you are. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? They're not only into Christianity, they bought a Bible, they read it every day, they come to church a couple times a week or more, they're really into this thing. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Hosea must have heard this being bandied around the nation. Because people were saying, you got to be nuts to say God's going to judge us. Just look around. We're prospering. we got everything going for us. There is no indication at all that God would judge us. Spiritual man is insane. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it gives us this principle. The natural man, that is a person, a man or woman by nature apart from Christ, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. But the spiritual man discerns or judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no man. They can't figure you out. You're an enigma. You're a question mark. You come into work Monday morning. Hey, how you doing? God bless you. Oh, go away. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. Now, we touched on something last week, and I said we would get back to it this week. And this is here where I want to reach back into chapter 8 and want you to notice something. We were skimming when we got to verse 11, so let's skim back over it. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange Thing. The New Living Translation puts it, but they treat these laws as if they don't apply to them. Now just think about this. God says, I've given them, I, I've given them my law, the self-disclosure of, my, of who I am. I've revealed myself to them. These are great things, but they treat them like they're strange things. No other nation in the history of the world has been given the privilege the nation of Israel has been given to receive the very laws of God. I want you to see how um, Paul writes about this. Turn to Romans chapter 9.
I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience is also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. Also, the law is a word that they would use for the first five books of Moses, the Torah. Also, the term the law is sometimes used for the whole Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. Paul is saying, look, I know about this people. I'm a part of them. God gave them everything, the promises, the word, the very law. But now God says they treated the great things as if they were strange things. They treated them as if, well, it doesn't apply to me. It's funny, our reaction sometimes. We'll hear a message and we'll think, oh, my husband needs to hear this message. Oh, my wife could really get a dose of this one. And in our hearts, if they're not there, we're nudging them. Well, all the while, the Holy Spirit's nudging us. Saying, wait a minute, this is for you. This applies to you. Now, I'm bringing this in here because there was a trend going on in Israel. And perhaps there is a trend going on today in America with Christianity. I'm concerned for the church of Jesus Christ. I'm concerned that more and more churches are taking the word of God, the great things of the Bible and seeing them as strange things. Either because they never read them, they don't know them, they're a stranger to those truths, or they think it's strange to have services built around the reading of the Bible, the studying of the Scriptures. Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with Him. For they must be wooed to meetings with a stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments. Too often the Bible that is something great is seen as something strange. I remember as a boy I tried to get Nathan to eat vegetables. And I remember I tried everything. Hey, Nathan, listen, Popeye, he always ate his spinach. And I did the whole thing. And, he, you know, anything to get something that was good for him in his body. And sometimes those things worked and sometimes they didn't. And it's funny, now he's an adult. And all of that haranguing, I realize, didn't really do a whole lot of good. All of the enticements, you'll get cake if you do, didn't really work. He still hates vegetables. He's 20 years old now. It's like vegetables, whatever. Never like them, still don't like them. And the concern that I have is that we start doing that to the Bible. I believe in being relevant and contemporary. I believe in getting people's attention. But then to treat the Bible as if it's secondary we will create spiritually illiterate 
believers. Because we're so worried about entertaining the goats rather than feeding the sheep. Feed the sheep. These are great things that we're discovering. And as we apply them and obey them, we find just how great they are. Let's go back to Hosea. They wanted nothing of it. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. Verse 8, The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways. Now God is sort of turning this on them. The watchman refers to the true prophet. The term prophet in the following stanza refers to the so-called prophets who were false prophets at that time ensnaring the people, saying, don't listen to Hosea, don't listen to Isaiah. Oh, no, no, God won't judge us. Make an alliance with Assyria, no problem. So they were actually bringing the people into bondage. The true prophets, the watchmen, are the ones really hearing from God. Now, watchman is often a term for the prophet. Ezekiel was called a watchman on the wall. Uh, Habakkuk said, I will make my watch on the wall, and I will watch for what God has to say. So that's a, a common word for a prophet. And in here it means a true prophet. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all of his ways, enmity in the house of his God. They are all deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. Now there's another geographical metaphor. It's a, it's a place that refers to a time in their history where they had some indiscretion, some sin. It's mentioned uh, three times. We're going to get to it a couple more times and I'll explain as we go the final times that it's mentioned. They will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Okay, now remember, the term Ephraim, it's... A, a boy's name and a tribe was named after him, but the term means fruitful or twice fruitful. Joseph named his firstborn kid Ephraim in Egypt, saying, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So twice fruitful is the name for Ephraim. It's a play on words, because now the prophet is going to say, even though you're named twice fruitful, your experience will be you'll become twice unfruitful. You'll be unfruitful. In the harvest, you'll sow but not reap enough. Or outsiders will take it over. You will also be unfruitful in your home. Either you won't be able to conceive and bear children as part of this Assyrian judgment, or if you do, they'll be taken captive or killed anyway. Verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your father's as the first fruits on a fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. Now imagine going through the desert. You're on a hike. You lose your way. You run out of food. Now your lips are getting parched because you're low on water and food. Suddenly you come to a grapevine in the desert. Wow, what an unexpected delight. Grapes, food, refreshment. God says, when I found Israel in the desert, they were a delight to me. I think God is bringing them back to the time they were going through that wilderness of Sinai. 
They're on their way toward the promised land. Yes, they will be wandering, but there they are in that nascent stage, that beginning stage, trusting the Lord. We're going to leave the pleasures and all of the things that Egypt has to offer. We're here just simply trusting God. God saw that and said, oh, I remember what it was like. You took that step of faith and you were so refreshing to me at that stage. The prophet Isaiah does compare Israel to a vineyard. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you're going to see taxi cabs or sometimes vans with two guys and a a stick between them and this huge cluster of grapes. It's still the symbol of the ministry of tourism in Israel. And those two men carrying the grapes are, of course, Joshua and Caleb bringing the fruit back from the land. The 12 spies came back and they brought with them the Joshua and Caleb, the evidence of the fruit. Ever since that time, that harvest of grapes or a vineyard has become one of the symbols in the Bible for the nation of Israel. So, Isaiah chapter 5 is a beautiful chapter. Let me sing to my well-beloved, says Isaiah, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. He continues, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He watered it. He tended it. He dug it down. He cleared out its rocks. He planted it with the choicest vine. He put in a wine press and a tower, and he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But instead, it brought forth wild grapes. God says, here's my country, my nation, my people. They were once so refreshing to me, and I did everything that I could do to make them fruitful. I would expect fruit to come. Instead, wild grapes. And then God proceeds to say how he will take down the hedge of protection. And the enemy will get at them and they will become prey to the enemy and be taken captive. So God says, at first you were a delight and then you cease to bear fruit. Here's one of the instances, another piece of geography. Verse 10, as the first fruits in the tree in its season, they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that chain. Does that ring a bell? I'll refresh you with the story. You may want to write down in the margin of your Bible, Numbers chapter 25. You remember the story of Balaam, right? How Balak of Moab hired this prophet to curse Israel, but instead he blesses Israel on several occasions. Before he leaves, he tells the king of Moab, I cannot curse the people that God has blessed. These are God's folks. I can't touch them. I've got to bless those that the Lord blesses and curse those that the Lord curses. So I can't give you a cursing, but only a blessing. But I'll tell you what you can do if you want to see these people get in trouble. Send your women in the camp while they're camping right down here below at at Baal Peor, the Acacia Grove. Send your women in with their idols to entice the men to have sexual relations with them because that was part of the pagan worship system of the Moabites. Then bring out your little gods and goddesses into that setting because that is for you guys a worship tactic. So in effect, they will bring the judgment of God and the curse of God on themselves by committing that kind of sexual immorality. And they did. 
And thousands, 24,000 people in Israel died on that day. So God is hearkening back to this time, this place, this piece of their geography, again showing the track record of their iniquity. As for Ephraim, verse 11, their glory shall fly away like a bird. Oh no, they won't be Ephraim, they won't be fruitful, they'll lose their fruit. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them, just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Don't have time to get into it. I refer you to Ezekiel 27. A detailed prophecy is given of the nation, the city nation of Tyre. A place in one of the most beautiful locations in the world on the Mediterranean Sea, just north of Israel in Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon. It's one of the cities that has been hurt in the last recent conflict with Israel. Tyre, beautifully situated, God severely judged her, and it was completely destroyed by the Babylonians and then utterly destroyed by Alexander the Great. So, again, hearkening back to a location and a time of judgment and pulling it all together to make a reference to the nation of Israel. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. There's another piece of geography. For there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Gilgal. What's that place? You'll remember it when I tell you. As soon as the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River, entering into the Promised Land, after all those years of wandering, they first set up a camp at a place called Gilgal. Now, Gilgal became headquarters, HQ, for all of the operations of taking the land for themselves. So they perched at Gilgal. They sent in troops to the middle part of the land, then the southern part of the land, then the northern part of the land. And from Gilgal, they took the inheritance God gave them. As time went on, and as kings came on the scene, both in Israel and Judah, that place of trusting the Lord, that place of a headquarters where they waited for God's instruction, became an altar, a place of worshiping false gods, a cult ritual worship center. And they knew it. They remembered it. So God's saying, remember that place? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. We, we've blown it a long time, haven't we? It's again to jog their memory. Now, God says, I hated them. It's not that he hated them personally. This is a holy hatred for their sin. It's sort of similar to what David says in the Psalms concerning the enemies of God. Do not I hate them, O Lord? Do not I hate them with a perfect hatred, not a carnal hatred, not a personal vendetta or something against them, but a holy hatred for the sin that they would commit. My God, verse 17... My God will cast them away because they did not obey Him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. It's an interesting prediction. As I see it, since 722 B.C., when the Assyrians became their captors, 
the Jews have wandered in and out of nations around the world. And even today, they're still coming back, trickling into the land of Israel from all over the globe. They become a wandering people, a displaced people. So in chapter 9, God says, I wanted them fruitful. They weren't fruitful. They should have grown. They didn't grow. A few principles for you and for me. Number one, spiritual growth should occur. I know that sounds so basic. But you ask yourself this question. Are you growing? Are you uh, every, say, year? Let's just use that as our yearly or, or point of inventory. Are you growing this year stronger, closer to Christ than you were last year? Or are you saying, well, you know, the more I get into this Christianity thing, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. You know, these spiritual people, I used to be like that. But the spiritual person's insane. They turn out to be nutty if you get too far into it. Spiritual growth should happen. You should be going from different stages of infant to um, spiritual toddler to teenage years to maturity. As it says in 1 John, children, young men, fathers. You expect babies to grow. It'd be a tragedy to see a 25-year-old male go up to his parents and say, Daddy. Be tragic. No growth. So that's point number one. Spiritual growth should happen. Number two. Spiritual growth isn't always commiserate with a person's age. There's not always a direct correspondence. We'd like to say... Well, they're mature as human beings. They're 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. They're much more mature as Christians, but not necessarily. It is possible to be an old infant. Uh, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. There are infants in the church that are 70 years old, displaying all of the infirmities of declining years. But he said, on the other hand, there are young men, young women in the faith who are wise, stable, and father and mother-like figures. So it brings us now to our third point. If spiritual growth should happen, if spiritual growth isn't always corresponding to the age, then here it is, number three. You can grow as much as you want to. The controls are in your hands. Oh, salvation is a free gift. You don't earn anything. But once saved, you can grow spiritually as much as you want to or as little as you want to. It sort of depends on your level of hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Blessed are those who casually snack after righteousness. Hunger and thirst. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible is 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, whereby have been given unto us exceedingly great 
and precious promises that we can be partakers of the divine nature through the knowledge of Him. Therefore, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. If these things are in you and abound, you will never be barren. You will never be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. God has given us everything you need to grow, he's saying. Every single thing you need for spiritual life and vibrancy is found in the promises of God, the great things of the law. Now, because of that, therefore, add to your faith. Never be content to plateau. Add a level of faith. And to faith, well, I already got that. Okay, add to faith virtue. I already got that. Well, add to virtue uh, self-control. Oh, okay, that's a little harder, but I'll work on that. Oh, then after that, brotherly kindness. Well, I'm, I'm a nice guy. And then agape love. And it goes on. It's layer after layer after layer. Add. Or look at it this way. Spice up your Christian life. One of the things I missed so desperately about New Mexico was chili. I missed you most of all, but chili was up there. You know, you, you, you eat food or you go into a restaurant and they say, oh, this is hot. It's like, oh, please, you have no clue what good spice is. And so, you know, you can have a meal, but if you really want a great meal, you put chili on it. You, you just, you add to it. It's good, but make it great. Add to it. And then add a little of that, a little pasoli, red chili. You know, you, you can add a tamale. You can, do, you can add and make it Wow. So why just have, you know, i got a Christian walk, I, I know God. So what? Add to it. Add chili to it. Spice it up with faith and self-control and brotherly kindness. And let those things, as Peter said, be in you and abound. And he says, you will never be barren nor unfruitful. Same term, play on words that Hosea is, you'll never be unfruitful. He said barren or unfruitful. The word barren means it doesn't work, literally. It doesn't work. Have you ever had somebody say, I tried walking with Jesus one time, it doesn't work. That's a lie. It always works, because He always works. And if it didn't work, it's because you stopped adding to your faith. You stopped growing somewhere along the line. So growth should happen, number one. Number two, it's not always equal with your age. And number three, you can grow as much as you want. So, ready, set, grow! Israel, verse 1, chapter 10, empties her vine. What a picturesque thing that is. They were pouring out money every year, tribute money, to Shalmaneser, the Assyrian, for help. All you're doing is emptying your vine. You're, you're pouring your wealth out. You're emptying all your fruitfulness into another nation that will not only not protect you, but will take you captive. Israel empties her vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars according to the bounty of the land. They have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. 
He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. Now in chapter 9, in fact, in the chapters previous, 8, 9, 7, 8, 9, he has been like this attorney, this good lawyer, bringing a case before the judge. Chapter 9, the gavel goes down, judgment, the sentence is read. But he is also like a skillful physician, getting to the very heart of the problem. Not only have they done this and done that and sinned here and sinned there, But now he gets down to the very heart issue, the core. The core is a divided heart. Psalm 86, very important. Some you should look at or memorize, at least in part. David wrote that psalm. And he prayed, Unite my heart to serve you, O Lord. It's a great prayer. Because sometimes we find we have a divided heart. We're wishy-washy on certain issues. Oh, I made this commitment, but... You know, I I can wait another few weeks before I really get into it. We're divided. And it's important that we have not a divided heart or divided interest, but a united heart, totally, fully, unto God, not unto anything else. Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate the other one. Elijah said the same thing. He's on Mount Carmel. The people of Israel are divided. Yeah, yeah, we love God. But, you know, we kind of like this Baal guy too. Mixed worship. So, I love Elijah. He stood up on the mountain. He said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, serve God. If Baal is God, then serve Baal. Make up your mind. Because they didn't really make up their mind there, he made it up for them. He went down to the brook Kishon and killed 400 of their false prophets. He's a gutsy guy. So their heart is divided. That's really the core and the key issue that he gets down to here. For now they say, we have no king. Actually, they did have a king. I'll explain that. Because we did not fear the Lord as for... A king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. If you will recall, when they were in the wilderness, when God found them like a refreshing vineyard out in the desert, when they just left Israel, uh, Egypt, and, and they were going to the promised land, and they stopped at Sinai. They said, Moses, go up to that mountain. We're not going. It's burning and smoking. We don't want to get smoked. You go. We'll trust the Lord for you, man. And whatever God tells you to tell us, we'll do it all. Now, God heard that. And God liked what he heard. It was a great thing to say. God just knew them. He knew that they weren't able to do it. So they said, you bring word back. Whatever God tells you to tell us, we will obey. And God said to Moses, I've heard what they said to you, Moses, and I liked what I heard. But, oh, that my people had such a heart within them to obey my precepts. He knew that the problem was deep inside of them, that they were incapable of obeying all of the law that God would give them. But they had the right heart. They wanted God to rule over them. 
It was a theocratic kingdom. God was to be the Lord. They were to trust Him. But as history went on, in the days of Samuel, they got tired of just trusting in God and being a unique nation. They didn't want to be a theocracy. They said, hey, Samuel, we want a king to be like other nations. We don't want to be so unique. We want a visible representative to be our king so that we can be like all the other nations around us. God gave them their request. But you know the rest of the story. King after king after king. And each one just sort of slowly degenerated the nation till finally they were at such a low ebb the king couldn't do anything for them. Powerless. They had several kings. The last five kings of the ten northern tribes weren't even there by appointment of the dynasty. That is, there there wasn't a true succession of son, uh, father to son. They were usurpers. There was Shalom. He killed somebody to get on the throne. Then there was Menachem. He killed Shalom to get on the throne. Then there was Pekahiah, then there was Pekah, then there was Hosea. All five of them didn't belong there, usurped control, and they were worthless to the people. So God gave them what they wanted, but then they realized, oh, it really didn't do us any good to have what we thought we wanted. We should have just trusted God. As for a king, what would he do for us? The inhabitants of Samaria, verse 5, fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon, Bethaven means house of iniquity, the calf. Let me go a little further. I'll explain it. We don't have a whole lot of time. We have less than a whole lot of time. A lot less. <laughs> for the people mourn for it, and the priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off. He would die and go into captivity, 722 B.C. Like the twig on the water. Also the high places of Avon, which means iniquity. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. Jesus quotes this verse in Luke 23. John quotes it in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, that the people in the final judgment will, like these people, say, there's no escape. We don't want to go into captivity. We don't want to experience all of the hardship that could come upon us. We'd rather just die now. That's how desperate they would get. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There it is mentioned again. There they stood... The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Now this goes back to verse 5, the calf of beth Aven. The two transgressions. When the kingdom split after Solomon, Rehoboam took two southern tribes, Jeroboam took ten northern tribes, and he put two calves, two abominations, one in Bethel, which is right in the middle of the country, Samaria, and one in the north, up at Dan. That's what God is referring to. So again, this geographical metaphor, pulling out these places and incidences of their history, saying, look, 
Remember, you guys have a history of this. Okay, it mentions Gibeah again. What happened at Gibeah is about as low as you could ever get as a nation. Times were so bad. Immorality was at at such an extreme that God is saying, you guys have a history of sin and immorality. Remember Gibeah. In Judges chapter 20 is the story. I'll give it to you briefly. There was a Levite who came to a town called Gibeah, little town in Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. He was out in the open square, just kind of looking around. The night was coming quickly, and a man from the area said, What are you doing out here? It's so unsafe for you to be outside. You know, you're you're going to be killed. You'll be assaulted. Come stay with me. So he accepted the stranger's kindness, went in, stayed the night. Men of the city gathered around and wanted to have uh, homosexual relations with that man. Uh, He was prevented from doing so. The man of the town said, Go away. So they took his concubine and they raped her all night till the following day when the Levite said, Get up! She was lying dead on the threshold. Then he commits a gruesome act. He takes out a machete and he divides his concubine, now dead, into twelve pieces. And he sends a piece to each of the tribes of Israel saying, I want you to know this tragedy that has happened in Gibeah of Benjamin. The people of Israel were so incensed at this time, now shocked because of this sin, it dawned on them how bad it had gotten. It says that Israel came together as one man together at Mizpah, and they were ready to march on Gibeah. And every person in Benjamin was slaughtered except only 600 people. It almost meant the annihilation of an entire tribe of Israel. Desperate times. Low, low times. It described every man did what was right in his own eyes. So God is hearkening back to that, saying, you're doing it again. You're despicable. It's time for me to judge yet again. Ephraim, verse 11, is a trained heifer. They're often are trained to thresh upon the threshing floor that loves to thresh grain, but I will harness her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow, uh, and Jacob shall break his clods. Here's the point God is making. You had such potential to serve. Just like you would train a heifer on the threshing floor, and that heifer would soon pull a plow and be able to have a lifetime of service for a master. You had such potential in serving God, but you squandered it. Now instead, your neck is going to be bearing the yoke of captivity. You won't be allowed to serve me. Your own sin has cut off your opportunity for serving the Lord. So God gives them the solution, and we're going to have to look more in depth at the solution next week. hate when that happens. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. See the word mercy? You could write next to it love. It's a Hebrew word, hesed. It means God's covenant love. So let me retranslate it for you. You want a crop of love? 
then learn to plant righteousness. You plant righteous things and you'll experience a crop of God's love. You'll be enjoying God's favor, enjoying God's merciful love. You just got to know where to plant. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. Same thought. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. In the multitude of your mighty men, therefore tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered, as Shalman, or Shalmaneser, the Assyrian, plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a historic scene that happened a few years before. A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. So we'll be able to give a little more flesh to those bones next week as we get into the other chapters. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we sing so often, all we need is you. And it's all about you. And Father, we want to be so content with the simplicity of gathering and worshiping and reading and studying and applying. Because it really is not about us but about our pleasing you. And we find that when we please you, we are so utterly pleased and contented as a result. But it seems the more we do as we please, the less we are pleased with what we do. So, Lord, I pray that we would have a lifetime, all of us in this room, a lifetime of serving you. All of the wonderful opportunities that you'll lay before us, it's my prayer that we'll not be hindered from them, that our heart won't become hard like the ground that needs to be broken up and made fallow once again. Keep our hearts tender, tender toward you, in love with you, not entertaining any idol, not mixing up our worship, but a total life of undevoted, unadulterated attention. Thank you for your love to us, Lord. I pray each person in this room would experience your covenant love, your mercy, a whole crop of your love. As they, as we, sow righteousness in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.